0: We are talking this afternoon about verses 33 to 40 of Psalm 119, and then also about verses 41 to 48. Now, you may remember from the introduction to the psalm that uh, this uh, first stanza we're considering together, verses 33 to 40, is... characterized by using the hiphil or causative, form of the Hebrew verb at the beginning of each verse except for the last. And that causative form of the Hebrew verb begins with the letter he, equivalent to our h. And so we can translate this stanza as I also suggested in the introduction, something along these lines. Cause me to learn, Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Cause me to understand, and I will keep your law, and I will observe it with my all my heart. Cause me to tread in the path of your commandments, for in it I delight. Cause my heart to incline to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Cause my eyes to turn away from seeing vanity in your way. Revive me. Cause to stand for your servant, your word, that is, for your fear. Cause to turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. And then the final verse departs from that pattern. Certainly, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, revive me. So what you have is a whole series of petitions, seven verses, in fact, that are uh, petitions to the Lord and that are uh, the, uh, asking the Lord to conform him in all of his life to the way of his commandments. So he's really asking here in this um, stanza for understanding of the law and is promising as he receives this understanding to keep the law. And I think the stanza falls into two parts, very easily, naturally into two parts. In the first four verses, uh, the first half of the stanza, he's concerned primarily with that perfect keeping of the law and asking God to conform him in all of his life to that law. In the second part in the stanza, the last four verses, he's concerned especially with some, what I would say are important corollaries to that main idea of the first part. And we'll look at those uh, corollaries of that first uh, part when we get to that second half of the stanza. So we're going to uh, divide our discussion in that way, uh, verses 33 to 36 first, uh, which get us to the main idea, and then uh, verses 37 to 40, the important corollaries that are associated with that main petition he begins then by asking, cause me to learn the way of your statutes. And of course he means not that he has no uh, knowledge of the statutes, he has knowledge of the statutes of course. Even uh, in fact Romans 2 verse 15 tells us that the unbelieving have a certain knowledge of the statutes, the work of the law is written on their hearts but this is a believer who's talking here and He's obviously got more knowledge of the statutes than comes by way of natural birth. That kind of knowledge, in fact, is rejected by the unbelieving. They suppress it just like they suppress the knowledge of God. But he wants a fuller, a complete knowledge of the commandments of the Lord. He wants to know everything there is to know about the uh, commandments. And so this is a prayer we can make throughout all our lives. Uh, we never have a perfect knowledge of the commandments of the Lord. So that's the, the first petition. And the second petition just carries that a, a short step further, I think, caused me to understand. He says, and I will keep your law. And I think what he's asking for is a bit more than knowledge here. He's asking for And not only uh, knowledge of the commandments, but I think he's asking for a comprehensive understanding that will enable him to use these commandments in his life. A, A wisdom, even, with regard to the commandments, so that he not only has the commandments, knows the commandments inwardly, has them, as it were, written on his heart, but he has an understanding of the use that these commandments are to have in his life and is able to take these commandments and apply them to all the different circumstances of his life and all the questions that arise. And it's then in connection with that uh, learning and understanding that he goes the next step and says, cause me to tread in the path of your commandments. That is... Now, not only fill my mind with the knowledge of your commandments, give me a full understanding, a comprehensive understanding of the bearing of these commandments on my life, but now make my feet walk in the way of those commandments. And then finally, cause my heart to incline that is, make me love these commandments, make my heart desire these commandments, make me uh, delight in the way of your commandments so that I'm always uh, prompt and eager to learn, to understand, and to tread in the way of your commandments. So he has these four petitions, which really, taken together, mean sanctify me completely, make me perfectly holy, so that I may never depart from your commandments. And you see this uh, idea then, this idea of perfection coming out in the promises then that he attaches to the first two of those requests. Verse 33, cause me to learn, and I will keep it to the end. That is, if you give me this knowledge of your commandments, then I will keep those commandments to the end of my life. They will be the guiding principle they will be the way I walk. I will keep them. But I can do that only as you cause me to learn, as you teach me. And he adds the same promise to the next request, cause me to understand and I will keep your law, and I will observe it. Only notice here that, he, uh, that in this case he says, I will observe it with all my heart. So not only... Do I want to keep it for the rest of my life? But I want to keep it with all my heart. I want to have my whole being, my whole heart devoted to this um, um, keeping of your commandments. So he's, he's very passionate about this. And, and very uh, thorough in his requests to the Lord to uh, cause him, to work in him, this obedience to the commandments. In verse 35, then he attaches a, uh, a reason to his request. Cause me to tread in the path of your commandments, for in it I delight. This is my joy. This is what I really want. This is my desire. I'm asking these things of you, not out of sense of obligation, but I'm asking them because I really, truly want to do this. I want to keep your commandments. I want to walk in their way. And in verse 36, the last of the four petitions we're looking at, he says, and not to covetousness. He adds the negative side here. But notice that you're looking at that negative side, not now inclining to your testimonies, but inclining away from covetousness. Don't make me inclined to covetousness. He focuses his attention on the tenth commandment. You shall not covet and he says when you incline my heart to to your testimonies and take away from me all those inclinations all those wills those acts of will, all those desires, all those passions that are contrary to your commandment don't incline me towards covetousness, incline me to your testimonies, direct me in that direction but it's all of course to be given to him by God. He acknowledges very clearly here that this is not of himself. He's not just seeking the Lord's help. He doesn't say, help me learn, help me understand, help me walk. He says, cause me to learn, cause me to understand, cause me to walk, cause my heart to incline. That is, this is your work. You must do it. And I look to you to do it because this is my desire, but even the desire comes from you, incline my heart to your testimonies. So I think that's the first part. You can see his, his passionate desire to be in obedience. But then you have, the, in the second half, what I called important corollaries to this. And these things are not, and I say they're corollaries because he's not directly asking for obedience here, but he's asking for things that accompany the obedience and that are even necessary for him in order to carry out that obedience which he wants and which he promises in the first half of this stanza. So the first thing he says is, cause my eyes to turn away from seeing vanity. You see the two sides of the work of sanctification. Looking at the first half, cause me to obey. And the second half, cause my eyes to turn away from seeing vanity. When he talks about vanity, he's talking about all those things that are worthless, all those things that are futile, all those things that are false. That word is sometimes, for example, applied to idols. Idols are called vanities. That's one of the things here that he's talking about. Turn my eyes away from all those idols that I see in my life, not just the um, stone and metal and wood idols that the heathen worship and that sometimes the people of God worshipped in those days, but all the idols of my heart, money and power and all those different things that we get caught up in worshiping. Turn my eyes from those. This is the word that's used in the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So turn my eyes from that vanity of using your name in vain of not reverencing you as I should. It's a word that's sometimes translated as falsehood in the Old Testament. And so that's another vanity, another emptiness or futility that he wants to be turned away from. Turn my eyes from all those things that are contrary to your law, because all of them are worthless, all of them are false, all of them are futile. Don't let my eyes look in that direction. Turn my eyes away. Compel me to look in a different direction towards your commandments. So that's the first thing. In order to become obedient, he needs, he needs to have God turn his eyes away from the wickedness which his eyes naturally turn to. The second thing he says is, in your way, revive me, or in your way, make me live. Again, it's that word, make me live. I don't have life in myself. I'm dead. Because I'm dead, I can do nothing but sin in myself. I need you to give life and I need you to support life and I need you to feed and nourish life so that it grows and becomes more abundant so that I may walk in your way. Then he says, cause to stand for your servant, your word. Now, the word can probably be taken here in the sense of promise, and you'll find some of the translations actually using the word promise here. But I think we should remember that this is a synonym for the law, a synonym with all those other words like precepts and statutes and testimonies and law and so on. And that if it's to be understood in the word as meaning promise here, he's talking about promises embodied in the law. The law is promise and Rule together. So we have in the second commandment. and he will show his mercy to thousands of those who love him. And keep his commandments. And We have in the fourth commandment. Or the fifth commandment rather. That those who honor their father and their mother. Will live long in the land which the Lord their God is giving them. And we have implicit in the fourth commandment. Commandment to observe the Sabbath day. The promise of rest lies behind that fourth commandment that God will give us rest as we observe the Sabbath day in the fear of his name. And the law begins with reference to his promise. I am the Lord your God as I have promised.
1: Therefore,
0: keep these commandments. So the law and the promise go together and he's if he's talking about the promise he's also talking about the law as the law... Uh, and as the promise appears in the law. Let that promise then be confirmed. Let it stand for your servant. Strengthen my faith so that I may know and be assured that that promise (coughs) which you have spoken is good and will be kept for me. Now the second part of that verse is difficult. Difficult. And if you can see the difficulty here, if you look at the way the translations uh, deal with it, in the New King James, we have there uh, who is devoted to fearing you. So they take that fearing, that word fearing, and refer it to uh, the psalmist himself. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. I fear you, therefore establish your word to me. But uh, Young's literal translation has this, establish to thy servant thy saying that is concerning thy fear. So he says the word is about the fear of the Lord. It doesn't refer to the servant at all, it refers to the word, the saying of the Lord. It's a, and it's a word about his fear. The English Standard Version has confirmed to your servant your promise that you may be feared. So they say uh, the purpose of confirming the promise is so that the Lord may be feared. The Revised Standard Version has confirmed to thy servant thy promise which is for those who fear thee. So it's a promise that's made to those who fear him. And the New American Standard Version has established your word to ser- your servant as that which produces reverence for you. So you got five, I think, five different ideas here in these different translations of how that phrase should be interpreted. I myself, and uh, I think any one of them is probably possible, but I myself prefer the New American Standard here. Even though the translation is a loose a little loose I think it gets to the idea the word or promise of God has as its purpose and as its result that we fear him confirm your word to your servant confirm to your servant your word that is for your fear that word is aimed at us fearing him he gives us his word so that we may learn to fear him. That's the point I think that he's making here. So he's not talking about his, a fear he already has, but he's talking about a fear he desires as He, the word of God is confirmed to him. Then in verse 39, turn away my reproach which I dread, for your judgments are good, or as we have it in our translation, cause to turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. And here he has in mind, I think, again there's some disagreement, some say it's the reproach of God to him for his disobedience, but since the word reproach in The related, the surrounding stanzas refers to the reproach of his enemies. I think we should take it that way here as well. This is the reproach of his enemies, that criticism of him for what they perceive as the failure of his faith, the futility of his faith. And he dreads that. He dreads it because it's oppressive, it's difficult to bear, it's troublesome to him in his life. He dreads it because it's a hindrance to him, in the way of obedience. And he asks for it to be turned away because, he says, your judgments are good. That is, I've held to these judgments, but these enemies of mine are saying that these judgments are worthless, are useless, that I'm wasting my time in seeking to obey them, but I confess that they are good. And therefore, turn away from me the reproach which I dread. And then he uh, turns in the first line of verse 40 away from petition and uh, goes to the motivation for his petition. Certainly, I long for your precepts. Here's what drives him in all the petitions that you find in the first seven verses of the stanza. I long for your precepts. I long to learn them. I long to understand them. I long to tread in in their path I long to have my eyes turned away from vanity. I long to be free from covetousness. I long for your precepts. Therefore, returning again to petition, in your righteousness, revive me. In your righteousness, give me life. And remember that though righteousness is described in the law of God, That's what is righteousness for us, how we live a righteous life. The law tells us that righteousness is also embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. In your righteousness, God's righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, make me live. He was righteous, he obeyed the commandments. He submitted to the curse of the commandments and he gave to us by his perfect life the ability to, or the um, example which we need to follow and gave to us by his death the power to follow in his steps. And so we say "He really, give me life in Christ who is the revelation of your righteousness and who is my righteousness as you grant him to me. So that's the uh, stanza of uh, verse, uh, verses 33 to 40. Let's turn now to the uh, second stanza, verses 41 to 48, that we're concerned about tonight. And um, this stanza, I think we may sum up with uh, this with the phrases from the first two verses. Show me your loving kindness so that I may have an answer for him who reproaches me. I think that's the idea. Show me your loving kindness so that I may have an answer for him who reproaches me. And I think you'll see that coming out as we talk about the stanza. But let's note that again, in the introduction, we talked about this stanza. and Every verse of this stanza begins with the Hebrew conjunction, and... Though our translations don't follow the pattern, don't show us that pattern, every verse begins with this. There's no variation from the pattern here, like there was in the preceding stanza. So we would translate as follows, and let your loving kindnesses come to me, Yahweh, your salvation, according to your saying, and I will answer with a word the one reproaching me, for I trust in your word. And do not completely snatch away from me my mouth, from my mouth, the word of truth for in your judgments I hope. And I will observe your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk in a broad place for your precepts I seek. And I will speak of your testimonies before kings and I will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in your commandments which I love. And I will lift up my palms to your commandments which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. I don't think there are Any clear dividing lines in this stanza, and maybe that's deliberate. The stanza is almost really one long sentence, isn't it? All the words of all the verses of this stanza connected to each other by that word and. So let's look first then at the and as we find it in verse 41. Now, again, I think that we can look at the translations here. There are some translations which completely ignore the and with which verse 41 begins. You look at the English Standard Version, the New International Version, and the Revised Standard Version, they all completely ignore it. And the other translations all do with it what our new King James has done with it. Let your mercies come also they translate as "also" and they move it later in the sentence. And I don't think we should do that. The "and" begins belongs at the beginning of the verse, and I think what we should understand by that then is that this verse connects to the preceding stanza. It means us to see a connection between this stanza and the preceding stanza. And so if you read verses 40 and 41 together, you can see it, I think. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness, and let your mercies come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your words. So it's a series of petitions that he makes here in those two verses. Revive me in your righteousness, the last verse of the preceding stanza, and also do these things for me, verse 41, let your loving kindnesses come to me, your salvation, according to your word. Three petitions in a row. So he's carrying on from that preceding stanza. And then if you take a little broader look at the two stanzas, I think what you see, as we've talked about already in the preceding stanza, is this desire to for perfect sanctification as we said, he wants to be perfectly obedient. And when he gets to this stanza, when he connects this stanza with that stanza, what he does is he says, and now here's what I'm going to do with those commandments when you have given them to me, when you have taught me, when you have made me understand, when you have caused my feet to walk. Here's how those, your work will be manifested in my life so that I think is the connection between the two stanzas but then that connection that that promise that he makes in verses 41 to 48 that this is how uh, these commandments will affect my life centers on the idea of speech Notice how he talks about speech in this um, stanza. First in verse 42, So I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me. Verse 43, Take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. And then again in verse 46, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. So as the Lord sanctifies him, answers the petitions of the preceding stanza, he says, I'm going to talk about them. Those commandments are going to give me an answer to those who reproach me. I will speak of them before kings, and I will not be ashamed. I think that's the the connection between the stanzas, and that's the point that we want to see about this stanza. Now notice, as we go on to the next point then, that this stanza has only two petitions in it. The preceding stanza was almost all petition. This one has only two petitions. They're in verses 41 and 43. The first petition is for the loving kindnesses and salvation of the Lord. And the second petition is, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. Those are the two petitions. He asks for God's loving-kindnesses and his salvation. His loving-kindnesses, of course, are those acts of kindness that are motivated by the love of God for him. When he asks for the loving-kindnesses of the Lord, he's asking the Lord to come to him or to meet him with those acts of kindness which are motivated by his love. And we talked about salvation Before, of course, and we've seen that that word's very broad. It means salvation from sin, salvation from death, salvation from sickness, from affliction, from enemies, all the different ways in which God works to deliver us from the curse of the law and from all the consequences of the curse in our life. That's what salvation is. But here his focus is especially, I think, on salvation from his enemies, and from the reproach of his enemies. And so, as he goes on then, he follows up this petition of verse 41 with verse 42. He has a promise, or he anticipates a result from this loving kindness and salvation of the Lord. So shall I have an answer For him who reproaches me. So he's saying, by your loving kindness and by your salvation, I will have an answer for him who reproaches me. In fact, the loving kindness and salvation of the Lord are the answer to his enemies. Because his enemies, remember, are reproaching him for the futility of his faith, for the futility of his hope, for the futility of his obedience. And he says, as you grant me your loving kindness and your salvation, they will see that this is nonsense. Their reproach is is not true. My faith was uh, meaningful. My faith was not futile, as they accused me of being. I will have an answer for those who reproach me. So that's the, the first thing he says. But then he goes on to say also in verse 43, take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. And what he means here, I think, is not only will the salvation and the loving kindness of the Lord be the answer that his enemies will witness his salvation and will be put to shame for their reproach, but he will take the word of salvation into his mouth. He will take the word of God into his mouth to himself object and argue against the reproach of his enemies. And he will say, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to me. This is the word in which I believe. This is how I will answer your reproach. I will answer your reproach, not out of my own imagination, but out of your word of truth. Don't take that word then from my mouth. If you take that word from my mouth, I won't have anything with which to answer my enemies. Let that word be there always in my mouth. Let my tongue be ready always to give an answer to those who reproach me. But notice too what he adds to both of those verses. Really, essentially the same thing. Verse 42, for I trust in your word. And in verse 43, for I have hoped in your ordinances. When he says in in verse 42, I trust in your word, what he means is, I believe that that word is true, but I believe also that that word is the effective and proper answer to the reproach of my enemies. That's the answer that will silence them ultimately. That's the answer which will judge them. That's the answer which will make them ashamed. Not my word, but your word. Your salvation, your loving kindness, your word in my mouth. I trust in that word. Trust in that word to provide the answer I need. Don't take the word of truth out of my mouth, for I hope in your ordinances or in your judgments. And it's basically the same ideas. An idea. I hope for my freedom from this reproach in your ordinances. Your ordinances will teach me what I need to say, and they will be the effective answer to the reproach of my enemies. What we have in, then in the verses that follow after these petitions is primarily promises that he makes. Notice that he's already um, kind of implied a promise in verse 42, so shall I have an answer, or, and I will answer with a word him who reproaches me. But this, verses 44 and following, primarily promises. And I think what we're seeing there is as he takes this word of God, into his mouth. As he embraces the salvation and loving kindness of the Lord shown to him, this is going to do more for him than simply teach him what to say. It's going to give him, essentially, a life that is consistent with the word. With the word which he has learned and which he is now speaking to his enemies. So he says, so shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. That is, I will be keeping your law. Word and walk will go together. My enemies will see it. I will keep it forever. I will keep it not only to the end of this life, but I will keep it into the age to come as well. In the second place he says in verse 45, and I will walk at liberty. Uh, Some translations may have here, and I will walk in a broad place. It's a more literal translation of the Hebrew. But you see what he's saying here is, uh, my enemies are trying to restrict and confine and oppress me in this very narrow place that they have conceived for me. They are trying to take away my liberty. They are trying to take away my joy. They are trying to take away my life. But as you give me your commandments and as you give me the answer I need to their reproach, then I will be able to walk at liberty. I will be able to walk in a broad place. I will be able to walk in that place where there is freedom and life and joy. For I seek your precepts. It's in the precepts of the Lord that true liberty and joy and life are found. That defines the place of life. That defines the place of liberty. Liberty for us creatures is never the freedom to do as we will. Liberty for the creatures whom God has made is always to do His will. And outside of His will there is not liberty but only death. Thirdly, he promises, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings. You remember in verse 23 of the psalm, he said, "Um, princes also sit and speak against me. I think he's referring to those same princes here, only picking out from among those princes the most prominent of them, the, the kings. These are kings who sit and speak against him. And he says, I'll talk about your testimonies to them. I'll tell them how these testimonies are my joy and my delight, how I long to keep them. I'll tell them what these testimonies mean. I'll take these testimonies and I'll apply them to their lives and show them where they have gone wrong. And I won't be ashamed. This will be my answer, and it will be an answer not simply that silences their reproach, but an answer that calls them to obedience along with me. In verse 47 he makes an additional promise that I will delight myself in your commandments which I love. My delight will be in them. My obedience, my walk will not be out of necessity, out of a sense of obligation but it will be my joy and my enemies will see the joy that I have in keeping your commandments. I love them. It's not painful or burdensome to me to keep those commandments. I delight in them. I will do them before men because of my delight. And finally in verse 48, my hands also I will lift up to your commandments which I love and I will meditate on your statutes. That's an unusual expression there my hands also I will lift up to your commandments. But I think what he means is here is, I will lift up my hands to the God of the commandments. And I will beseech him for understanding, for the ability to walk, for his spirit to guide my feet, for his spirit to give me the joy of his commandments. I will lift up my hands to those commandments because I love them. And I will meditate on them. I will continue to learn all the days of my life more and more the commandments of the Lord. Blessed are those who make the law their meditation day and night. Again, of course, this is the example set for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. As he walked in the valley of the shadow of death, as he endured the reproach of his enemies, he clung to the word of God, saying, I will keep your testimonies. Teach me. Make me understand. Keep my feet in the way. Not only that, but he used that word to answer his enemies. Remember how he dealt with Satan in the temptations. Three times Satan tempted him. Three times he quoted from God's word. The answer to our enemies is found in his ordinances, in his word, his testimony, and his work of salvation for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless his word for us.